0: I am Planta on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Alameen Abdul Mahmoud joins me now. The writer and broadcaster has just published Son of Elsewhere, a memoir in pieces. It is one of the more remarkable books of the year. It is filled with the wit and charm that's uh, made Mr. Abdul Mahmoud one of the more popular personalities in the media today. It also has the thoughtfulness that we need when we consider the lot of people who come to this country who want and try to fit in, and who want to find a place to belong. Elamine narrates not just his story, but the story of the country of his birth, Sudan, which uh, he left at the age of 12 to come to Canada. He looks uh, critically at what's happened in his country, the effect of uh, colonialism, not just uh, on the land and the people, but somebody like him who carries within himself that legacy. It affects how he sees himself in Canada, especially when for the first time he realizes he's black, because uh, that's what people see of him. This uh, follows a discussion of internalized racism, his own and others, as well as the stuff about growing up and how challenging that is for everybody. He finds connection through fandom of professional wrestling, and he's able to discover uh, some skill at uh, writing. His parents are, uh, throughout the book, and and are incredible characters themselves. We get a sense of Elamine's tastes and culture, which are uh, varied and fascinating, He's able to reflect on these uh, popular interests uh, a glean perspective uh, on race, politics, history, culture and everything else in between. It's such a rich book and an important read. Elamine abdul Mahmoud is uh, a culture writer for BuzzFeed and the host of CBC's pop culture program Pop Chat. He is a contributor on the Nationals at Issue panel. His uh, Twitter handle is @elamine88. This new book is published by McClelland and Stewart. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online Program, Elamin Abdel-Makboud. mister Abdul M- Abdel-Makboud, good morning.
1: Hey, how's it going?
0: Pretty good yourself.
1: Pretty good. Thanks
0: uh, for having me. I, 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 my note sheet is uh, just full of things that I want to talk about because I just love the book a great deal. Um, you, you really, um, um, I guess, bear yourself uh, um, throughout the book. Is that, is that hard for you to do? Is that, is that, were you reticent at all to write this?
1: You know, absolutely, Um, and it's to the point where I still kind of don't believe that I have revealed all these things, you know, Um, because the process of writing the book is so deceptively kind of private. It's just me kind of standing at my standing desk typing away in my pajamas, and um, the idea that uh, all of these things that I revealed just between me and the computer are now out there in the world um, is not a feeling that I've gotten used to still. um, I think there's a a part of you that's you know people keep bringing up things from the book and I'm like hey how did you know that and then like sort of keep being reminded <laughs> that I, I put it in a book and so yeah, yeah this, this, this is all a new feeling for me it,
0: it, it's such a um, it's such an important book I, I can't think of a better word because I think um, for for a lot of people who who who'll read it I'm not not just you know those of us who also buy the book now but I mean kids will find it at a library years from now and and, and find their story in there regardless of where they're from or where their parents are from
1: mm-hmm. i think that's my hope my hope is that this encounters somebody years from now um who needs it who needs yeah. to put words to some of the feelings that they're having because they're not quite sure what the thing is that they're going through and this kind of you know can sort of meet their experience wherever they are
0: so so you were 12 years old when 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 you and your mother came to canada your dad was here already is that right
1: yeah, he came a couple years ahead. He sort of left Sudan for Switzerland, and then after Switzerland he came to Canada, and then we caught up with him
0: here. So so I, I start the book, and then, and then um, I read the moment that you're at the airport, and you, you realize that, that um, you, you're being seen as black, and, and, and you feel that as you arrive in Canada. Um, yeah. That's, uh, you know, in, in retrospect, you know, no 12-year-old should have to go through that. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's, a, it's an unideal time. I think to go through that. Um, if you're a little bit younger, you don't notice it. If you're yeah. a little bit older, you're sort of maybe a bit more fortified against it. But uh, the sort of that preteen pocket is, uh, is a particularly sensitive time. It's a time when everybody's thinking about the ways that they are represented, the ways that other people are looking at them. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you can you can imagine that was uh, a tough transition period.
0: So there's another moment in the book where you, where you talk about. Um uh, sort of the reaction you 'd get from people and and i i 've had this my parents are Filipino. I was born in Vancouver um, yeah. but but I, I still got this is that when when people would be surprised that I spoke English um, as well or better than they did yeah and and for yeah. you, you like that feeling right
1: I did I got a lot out of that. I got a lot of that for for years and years it was like oh it 's working like they 're not noticing <laughs> that i 'm an immigrant you know yeah. like it 's like the camouflage is happening it's it, it, sort of taking effect and so i got a lot out of that feeling i would say like that for me was a was a high that i quite frequently sought and i never you know never thought about the politics of seeking that high particularly um but it was something that i did sort of go after
0: and then you you also talk about repudiating blackness i mean uh, there was a period in time where where someone i guess called you stan and then you took that on as a as, as a name um. I uh, being described as an Oreo, you you you, uh, you called yourself that you liked that, didn't you? I did. I think
1: like there's um my particular history is that like, you know, my parents moved. My dad my my dad moved just to Kingston, Ontario. It's not a town with a you know uh, a wide variety of representations of blackness in it. Um, and so for me, like. The only real representation of blackness that I had was on television, and it was, you know, in the form of folks like Ja Rule. And at the time, um, I would say, like, I sort of grew up in this Muslim household, relatively conservative household, um, and so the values of the blackness I was seeing on TV, this kind of commercialized blackness... um, Ran afoul to the values that I was sort of taught in this conservative kind of upbringing. And so as a result, I really rebelled against it. I thought, well, if that's blackness, then I don't, I don't think I have a place in it. I don't think that's for me. Um, and I kind of recoiled from it. And so when, when later I would get called something like Oreo, I took that as a compliment, you know, I took that as like a, as like a note of saying like, well, you're not like the blackness that we see represented on television. So that, uh, that was a very strong feeling.
0: And then when you look back at it and you look at the internalized racism of it, um, uh, you do a marvelous job in the book in terms of tracing where that comes from. And and there's a a powerful line in the book where you say, you hurt people, hurt people. And uh, being from Sudan, I guess, you know, a a lot of uh, Sudanese, especially the um, Arab African people there, uh, were told by the British, right? I mean, you were worthy of ruling and judging, and so... I guess it, it was only once you came to Canada that you, you put the pieces together, if you will, right?
1: Yeah, it was, you know, when thinking about how to structure that chapter and the chapter about my own relationship to blackness, um, I kept on thinking and thinking and thinking about how to approach that. And it sort of became evident to me that my story is really just Sudan's story, right? Mm-hmm. My my story is basically Sudan's parallel story of its relationship to its own colonizer. of, hey, where did you learn this idea of, critiquing yourself and hating yourself. And I was like, wow, it kind of makes a lot of sense to have grown up in a country that has that relationship with itself. And so that's why their story, these two stories, are sort of woven together because um, it's not, you know, not everybody learns to hate themselves. Um, that 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 stuff doesn't come internally. Somebody else has to teach you to hate yourself that way.
0: The other thing that I found just so marvelous to read, and fun even, is when you talk about the myriad ways that you connected with, with your identity, being black especially. I mean, m- music was very important. Um, I-, I mean, it still is, isn't it?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, you you know, I sort of had to be invited to blackness, um, and I took a bit of time in getting myself there. But once I did, like, music was sort of one of those key ways that unlocks that history for me. And it is a history, you know. Um, Zadie Smith describes blackness as a cultural residue, is what she called it. there's mm-hmm. a, as a there's a sense of, like, you are out there and you're trying to gather the, the, the elements that make up that cultural residue and you figure out what your access point to it is. And that's not easy. Everybody does it in their own way. Um, and music for me was one of the key ways of um, connecting with that history and that archive because once that archive becomes available to you, then you begin to see yourself in all these ideas. But but it takes time. Um, and I'm so glad I sort of took the time and I have the music that connects me to it.
0: And then it's a journey too, because you, as you grow older, as you as you, 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 as you go through your, your your life, even now you you find, found that you um, like country music, and yeah. you found such yeah. a connection there as well, didn't you?
1: I did. Um, I'm a big a big country music person. I have been for a few years or so, um, but the, that begins because country music does such a good job of doing something that Sudanese music does a good job of, which is um, talking about place and talking about the physical location, of where you're from, and the ways that country sort of lingers on describing place, um, the same way the Sudanese music does it too. And I loved that. I love that a lot because for me, like that's the music that I grew up listening to. But then there's also like the the instrumental connection. I think mm. there's like a lot of overlap of the oud and the banjo, um, string instruments. With a, with a sort of a beating heart um, that sort of make you feel an emotional tug. Like that's that's my zone, man.
0: You, you know the, the the other part of the book that, that um, I found uh, quite thoughtful, and and um, I'm still wondering about it long after I finished reading. You talk about um, uh, finding your your blackness, and, and I'm wondering how do you do that as a Canadian? when the, sort of the um, American blackness is such an omnipresent part of our culture?
1: Hmm. I mean, I think the, the short answer to that is very clunkily and, you know, over a long period of time. We have um, very rich expressions of blackness here. We have a rich sort of uh, particularly black arts tradition um, when it comes to music, when it comes to literature. Um, there are so many wonderful writers who are working in this country who give shape to a very a uniquely Canadian sort of perspective of blackness. But you got to seek it out. Mm. It's not going to come to you very easily. And part of the reason it's not going to come to you very easily is because we are dealing with this sort of hegemony of uh, Americanness and American blackness. Um, and I don't think it's a, you know, it's not a surprise to me that a lot of young folks, for example, have a hard time accessing that Canadian variation um, and that Canadian access point because part of the Canadian black experience is being so inundated with um, stories of American blackness and trying to tease out your place in those stories. Um, those those are, I think, difficult to navigate, but you have to be intentional about them. You have to be intentional about seeking out, okay, what is what are the stories that we're trying to tell about our existence here and how are they different from other existences elsewhere?
0: Yeah, and as you say in, in that part of the book, if, if you read Coates, uh, you can easily find George Eliot Clark, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly right. But you have to you have to do the work. You have to do the work of sort of trying to find um, the specific, trying to find like the specific location of where you're from and how it relates to this larger idea of blackness. Yeah. Uh,
0: another exciting part of the book is is, is wrestling. Um, <laughs> I, I used to be a fan of wrestling as a kid, but then I lost it as I grew older. Um, but but I I, I just loved. Um, uh, reading about you and, and joining EFEDs as a, as a kid, and then um, uh, finding friends as well through wrestling. W- w- was um, your um, your writing? I mean, it, it seems to come alive in that period. Um, but were there people in, in your family who encouraged you to write earlier? Say, uh,
1: no. I mean, I, I wouldn't say like. You mean about wrestling?
0: Well, writing in general, because it's, it's when, you're, when you're coming up with these matches or these personas, your writing really comes alive. And so, I mean, it, it, your Uncle Fufu or your dad, did, did they encourage you at all to write?
1: No, like, I don't think writing was sort of part of the dream. You know, for the longest time, I was like, I, I promised that I resolved to go to law school. That was mm-hmm. the plan. Um, and so I don't think I'd given them even any indications I was interested in writing. For me, like, when I was doing this sort of wrestling fan fiction stuff, um, I was doing that in private. Like my family wasn't really aware that I was spending my time doing that. Um, I think had they been aware of it, they would have encouraged me to do more and more of it. Mm. Um, but uh, I kept it hidden. I kept it hidden from. I mean, I kept it hidden, hidden even from some of my closest friends at the time because it was sort of you know you turn on the computer and you kind of delve into another world that you don't know, emerge for hours later and that's its own world and its own people and its own rules and you don't really have
0: to interact. With And when you reread some of it, which you include in in Son of Elsewhere, um, do do you see um, yourself realizing that you you could do this, say, for a living, or you could do this when you grew up?
1: I mean, I I, I do have to sort of come clean here and say the stuff that you read in Son of Elsewhere is me trying to reimagine what I was, Uh. like, you know, writing back then. But these were scenarios that I think I sort of remember specifically crafting back then, and I just sort of you know rewrote them now um but uh at the time i don't think i i don't think i looked at that as like really valuable sort of creative work as much as i was looking at it as just me expressing the way that i love wrestling um in another way because i got so into the storylines and into the trash talk and the ways that they sort of interact with each other um and it really pulled me in that i felt so compelled to sort of develop my own um my own kind of take on that like what was what was your wrestling era what uh when, well when, I, when,
0: I, I'm, a, I'm a little older than you so i, I was born in 82 so i would have I, I i stopped watching wrestling probably um as i uh, even before high school so in the in the uh, early 90s In 82
1: like that would have been like the height of like the hulk hogan era yeah,
0: the, of, the late 80s early you know, 90s yeah. andre
1: the giant kind mm-hmm. of period yeah for sure
0: um it, it, does wrestling afford you a um a, a way to look at politics i mean we watch you on thursday nights on the yeah. national um yeah. I, I i i would assume that some of the watcher, the watching of wrestling helps you say uh, dissect <laughs> politics a little bit better does it uh
1: I, I they're obviously quite different um one thing that you get out of wrestling is an ease in terms of like just like the morality representation because in wrestling <laughs> yeah. like there's just a good guy and a bad guy um yeah. and the bad guy is trying to make sure that you know he's a bad guy there's so no good guy in wrestling is like no actually i'm a good guy like that doesn't really exist um they inhabit their roles in very sort of morally clearly delineated kind of ways and so um in that way it's quite different from politics but in the in the in the performances you know there's obviously similarities
0: there yeah, yeah yeah but but back to america for a sec because it it sure. remains a country that i'm fascinated with that, that you are still fascinated with um and and it's a it's a very healthy relationship you have with it because y- you do what a lot of people don't do and that's question it i mean there are aspects yeah. of it that you like and there are aspects of it that that, that need to be so, sort of yeah. uh, dissected and and um, say dismantled right yeah for
1: sure i think like I, for me, America is so complicated because the things that I love about it, um, I love so much. I've been so grateful for the, for all the things that America has given me, whether it's you know country music, whether it's so much of the entertainment sort of industry stuff that I consume, that I spend my time working on. Um, I my main day job is I write for an American website about pop culture, mm-hmm. um, but that's you know can't be separated from the colonialism of it all, it can't be separated from the imperialism of it all those are all sort of part and parcel um, of of, of dealing with America and loving America Um, I think that chapter uh, it does not conclude very tidily. you know, it's like, I don't know what to do with any of this, I think, you know, this is a problem for me also Um, but that's kind of intentional in the sense that, like, I'm not sure I will ever come to a conclusion about that, this is just kind of Part of the contradiction of appreciating America while also um, being critical of it.
0: Yeah, I've never found people that are totally anti-American particularly useful to talk to because I don't think um, it is useful to to, to think of America just one way or the other, right?
1: Yes, exactly, exactly that. And like that, uh, that chapter sort of opens with this memory of a period of time when you know we sang the song as children that was like very. Expressively anti-American,
0: yeah.
1: um, but then I sort of pivot to talking about all the ways that, for me, like, and for lots of the people that I had grown up or around me, um, America and getting a green card was like, like that was the dream. Like that's yeah. like the sign that you made it, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to talk about your faith because I found it very interesting yeah. to see as it, how it evolves throughout the book, and and it's it's obviously something that. that uh, it is evolving and will likely evolve throughout your life. Um, the only thing I was wondering about that is, is, um, had you uh, stayed in Sudan or had you immigrated elsewhere, gone to another country other than Canada? Would you, would your relationship to, to your faith be different, say? Uh, I
1: definitely think so. Um, I think there is, um, if I stayed in Sudan, like faith is just one of those things that it's in the water, you mm-hmm. know? Um, Kind of comes naturally because it's one of the connecting social bonds for everybody. You go to mosque with people in your family, with your neighbors. Um, there, there would be like fewer opportunities to drift away from that faith and have to find your way back to it because it just would be a part of the social fabric of everyday. Um, losing that has meant that like all my thoughts about faith and all my movements and action about faith have to be intentional, right? They have to be sort of like, that, they have intentionally move towards faith or intentionally make time and room to think about it. And that is not always possible. Mm. Um, and as a result for me, like sometimes I'm kind of resentful of that, resentful of um, how much work it is to remember to think about faith um, because I miss the days when it was easy and not really a question.
0: Yeah, I, it made me think about my own relationship with, with Catholicism. Yeah. Um I, you know, I, I, I am not a, a, a good practicing Catholic. I mean, if you ask my my mom that, she, she probably wouldn't um, say that I was, um, and sure. and and wish me to be otherwise. Um, but at the same time, I I it is a lot of work. You know, it is a lot yeah. of work to get up on, on Sunday morning. You know. Yeah, of
1: course, of course it is, and it's a lot of work to sort of remember. To keep faith is just like as a part of your regular, you know, regular existence. I mean, like the idea. I, I talked to some friends who um, have to like like I have a friend who sort of put a reminder on their phone um, to say grace before every meal, just because <laughs> yeah. trying to be more yeah. intentional about having faith be a part of their everyday. Yeah. And to me, like that's in a, in a in a way that's a stronger expression of faith than someone who just does it kind of out of routine, because. You're actively kind of trying to say, oh, I recognize that most modern-day distractions will get me out of the path of faith, um, but I'm going to go out of my way to make sure that I have some kind of reminder here or there for that.
0: The road itself, the highway um, that you traveled as soon as you got to Canada and and gone back and forth as you go to back home to Kingston from time to time. Um, yeah. it, it's such a character in the book and, and, and um, you know, a lot of people think of, of highways or, or roads or, or traffic even as, as annoying. Um, yeah. For you, it, it, it has a very special meaning, doesn't it? It does. Um,
1: I spend a lot of time on that highway. Um, I continue to spend a lot of time on that highway. It's the highway that, you know, takes me home, um, takes me to Kingston when I, I'm visiting now my dad um, and my mom sort of has moved, moved away, so she doesn't, um, she doesn't. I don't need to take the highway, the same highway to get there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but it's also, you know, when I was living in Kingston, it's the highway that uh, takes me out into new, different worlds. Um, and it's the place where I spent a lot of time processing a lot of really heavy thoughts. Um, and for me, like, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to have the space. I really don't, I'm not someone who minds traffic. I'm sitting in traffic. It's like, there's more time for me to think about things, more time for me to listen to music I enjoy, um, more time for me to get lost in thought. And like, so much time getting lost in thought that uh, I've really appreciated what the highway has given me for that.
0: I have to go somewhere. In, 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 well, I live in Vancouver, but I have to go to Surrey in, in a few weeks. And yeah. I, I've always hated going to Surrey because it, it's, it, one has to go, uh, usually, to take a highway, unless you take public transportation. Well, even if you take a bus, you have to go on a highway. Um, but I can't tell you how much I um, enjoyed the, the, these these pensive moments in the book where um, you talk about the road itself, and, and, I mean, it's made me look at my getting there shortly a little yeah. bit differently.
1: I'm glad. I'm, I think like, that's something that I was really hoping to do. You know, um, I think, like, when you have a road that you travel on quite regularly, there's something about it that becomes invisible to you. Um, But when you're reminded, when you try to sort of make it visible again to you, um, then you notice all these very peculiar, interesting things about it. But also you notice the ways that you become intimate with it, you Mm. know, Um, the ways that you're like, oh, I know exactly when it's going to slow down, when it's going to pick up, (laughs) where to stop. Um, And there's an intimacy there that I think we take for granted, but maybe we shouldn't.
0: Yeah. I love that part of the book where you talk about which rest stop. Yeah, um, because everyone stops at a particular one, and you say no.
1: <laughs> no, like that's not. Yeah, it's not. It's not the good one, man. Port Hope, I get it. I know it comes. I, I, I know it comes too soon, but it's the good rest stop, and you should take it. You don't need to take just the Trenton one. It's not good.
0: Early in the book, you, you talk about your time at Queens and meeting somebody named Chantel, and yeah. uh, she gives you um, the uh, zine, and she invites you to join. Uh, their group. You, you write um, um, in the book that much later you realize it's a, a profound act of generosity um, yeah. to see another person as part of your tribe when they don't see themselves as that. Um, you talk about w- w- what an enormous act of kindness it is. H- how do you think um, we do better in that regard and, and, and do more of that in our daily lives?
1: Um, maybe we notice people. Mm. We Sort of uh, and I re—I mean really notice people and what what it is that they might need in that moment. Um, I think I've, I've tried to sort of become a bit more cognizant of my interactions, not as like, oh, I'm trying to get a piece of information out of a person or I'm trying to, you know, answer one for them, but just in terms of like checking in and being like, okay, well, how do I really see this person um, right now? And I think like that's how I felt after that particular interaction. Um, and... I think, like, slowing down and sort of paying attention to the people around you is something that, you know, it's a muscle that is easy to lose in the hustle and bustle of everyday life, but it's really important one to focus on.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Um, and then I, I'm sure you're asked this a lot by interviewers about where elsewhere is or what elsewhere is. I mean, I, I can't help after reading the book thinking that um, it's the people that you talk about throughout the book. I mean, it's the people at the end of the book and in, in the acknowledgements, your family, obviously. I mean, um I don't know. Is, that, is my interpretation of, of of what elsewhere is for you apt? Say,
1: I would say so. Absolutely, man. I think like there's something about you know there's a there's a, there's a beautiful Elton John line that's just very simple, and it's and I thank the Lord for the people I have found. It's um, a line that I return to a lot because um, that's kind of the whole ball game, isn't it? Um, the idea of you know maybe home isn't here or there. It's this other thing. It's this other thing that you fashion. That's about living in the in-between space, and the thing that makes that in-between space livable is the people around you, the ways that you interact with them, the people you have chosen to guide you through the journey, the people who are going to be patient with you when you need that patience. Um, that's that's what makes it worthwhile, and so that's uh, that's the part that I want to spend time with.
0: Have, have you have you made enemies though?
1: Not that I know of, but I'm sure I have. You know, but they haven't let me know it yet.
0: Yeah, you have a friend who um, who's a well-known writer in this country who tells you you have to find uh, or you have to make enemies. I guess isn't isn't that what she said?
1: So yeah she said, she said She said i' gotta find one and i haven't uh't found one yet, so. and I keep getting back to and like look i I'm, I'm sure that they exist, but I haven't found
0: one yet yeah. um I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the book it, it it's um there's so much in it that that i I just loved and um i, I haven't uh I, I, I guess what what I was feeling as I finished the book is that I didn't want it to end
1: oh that's lovely that's like that's the kind of thing you can say about a book man thank you so much thank you for that, but also thank you for spending time with it to the point where you're like, oh, we could, do, could keep doing this for some more because um, I think that's the highest compliment you could pay for a book is, is not wishing that it ends. You
0: know? Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of your work and, and um, uh, when I, I started the book, I couldn't wait to, 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 to finish it and then um, I, I, just, I guess I just wanted more and I, I'm wondering, um, you obviously have another book in you. I mean, are you working on something now? <laughs>
1: Not right now, no. I'm sort of taking the, the time to enjoy the rollout of this one. Um, but I'd be lying if I didn't, you know, didn't say that uh, my editor has been like, "Hey, just so you know, it might be time to start thinking about what you might cook up next." So we, the thought, that the the wheels have begun turning, but we're not quite there yet.
0: Well, we'll, we'll await that. I so appreciate your time today. Thanks for this, I Elamine.
1: For sure. Thanks so much, Joseph. Really appreciate it.
0: The book is called *Son of Elsewhere: A Memoir in Pieces*. It's published by McClelland and Stewart. Its author, Elamine Abdul Mahmoud, joined me on the line from Toronto and Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.